0: There's no best practice, only promising practices. In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I'm joined by Ed Morrison. Ed is the director of the Agile Strategy Lab at the University of North Alabama. He started his career in Washington, D.C., where he was a legislative assistant to an Ohio congressman, staff attorney in the Office of Policy Planning for the Federal Trade Commission. After leaving Washington, he joined a corporate strategy consulting firm where he conducted strategy studies for large companies like Ford, Volvo, and General Electric. After his work as a corporate strategy consultant, Ed consulted with communities and regions on how to tackle the complex challenges of building a prosperous economy in an era of globalization. Frustrated with existing approaches to these issues, more than 25 years ago, he began working on a new methodology for developing strategy in open, loosely connected networks, now called strategic doing. Ed and I dig into the importance of guiding complex collaborations and how those collaborations emerge from conversations, civil, respectful conversations rooted in appreciative inquiry and what my friend Adam Hansen, guest on episode 30, calls forness. Those are ways that we can shape these conversations. Like all complex adaptive systems, there are no best practices, only promising practices, which can be guided by some simple rules and principles. I appreciate Ed sharing the history and evolution of strategic doing as a different and necessary approach to strategy. We talk about the insights Ed has gained in over 20 years of developing the practice. At its core is the importance of creating a safe place for civil conversations to impact change. Strategic doing is a form of agile strategy. Some of Ed's early inspiration came from looking at the open-source software development ecosystems. Ed describes the importance of teams and shares some powerful lessons learned working to reduce teenage violence in Flint, Michigan. We discussed some of the global changes starting in the 1970s that transformed our economic and civic ecosystems into a much more complex and adaptive system. Changes where old local strategic practices are no longer suited for the challenges of global changes and complexity. Those changes include trade regulations, the growth of the internet. And it's been said that strategic plans don't survive first contact with the enemy. Or as the philosopher Mike Tyson said, everyone has a plan until they're punched in the face. Strategic doing provides an agile, responsive way for us to collaborate at scale and address the truly complex and wicked problems our communities face. As a fan and a practitioner of strategic doing, it was an absolute pleasure having Ed join me on the podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. Ed, thank you so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, If you don't mind, for our guests, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, first of all,
1: thank you for inviting me. It's a great opportunity. And my my journey started with uh, just really focusing on on really complex challenges. I grew up uh in Ohio and I've always faced the challenges of globalization, you know, the the challenge of uh, of, of steel mills closing down. So, most of my uh work started there, which is, you know, how how do we deal with these complexities? Um and increasingly I focused on, on the whole question of wicked problems, you know, problems that don't have any uh, easy solutions. So that's really what I, what I've really devoted my career to is trying to figure out how do we deal with these wicked problems?
0: Thank you. And yeah, you, so some, some deep kind of, uh, you know, kind of almost rust, rust belt perspective, right. For, um, and I grew up in Northern Illinois, uh, so Rockford, mm-hmm. Illinois, which was you know, sure. for a sure. long time, uh, it was uh, small, small fastener manufacturing and furniture. Mm-hmm. And if you got a job there, you you were set for life as long as you were like just generally well behaved. Right. And what, what we saw in Rockford was in the, the 70s, those jobs really started to go away and right. they weren't coming back. And right a transition. And I know we'll, we'll dig into that, but I love your work with uh, complex adaptive systems and wicked problems. But so you saw this firsthand too, growing up in Ohio. Yeah. In Cleveland uh, you know, in, in the late sixties, early
1: seventies, it it was when the uh, the industrial economy was really peaking and starting to head down. And in the seventies, it really had headed down quite dramatically. Uh, and this is when I was uh, graduating from high school and going into college, and um, whole, the question was, you know, where do you go? And and of course, nobody wanted to go back to a community or a region that was heading downward and and didn't see a a path out. So uh the whole challenge of of how do you rebuild an industrial economy is has been something that that i've been focused on ever since i was a little kid looking at the steel mills um so it's a big it's a big it's a big uh, issue set of issues
0: and uh what when you when you left uh, for college what did you major in oh interestingly i i i was an african studies major
1: in college um yeah, I was fortunate enough to go to Yale and and they had a, a, a program where you could design your own major. And so I, I had the an excellent uh experience because I was I was trying to make sure that we uh uh you know take advantage of college um, and I got a mentor there who was very, very helpful to me and uh and he was an African history major, or African history professor, and he he guided me toward uh, African studies as a major, and it was ex- exciting. It was really good.
0: Thank you. And then how did you move into, because uh, just throwing my mental model, I think about you in more of an economic development and community uh, building space. Yeah. How, well, you... I graduate. Yeah, so
1: when I graduated from college, my mentor really was trying to get me to do a PhD in African history, and I told him I didn't really see an opportunity for for me to do that. And uh, he was from South Africa. He was a uh, he was a white South African, and he, he I asked him, uh, well, what do you what do you think uh, is a next step? And he said, well, you live in a country that you're fortunate to uh, be able to change things, and so that that little conversation with a mentor. Um uh encouraged me to head to Washington, so I did. I headed to Washington, got involved with politics, got, got a job on Capitol Hill, and really again, focused on on challenges of of globalization and how do you, how do you address a, a challenge for an Ohio congressman whose, uh, whose economy is starting to fall apart? And so that's when I really started getting into economic development questions. Um, I, I focused initially uh on Washington, and then i then I moved very rapidly to um, a consulting career with a big corporate consulting firm and I uh, spent about three years doing that and most of that work was focused on um, uh, shutting down manufacturing plants and uh, what was happening was that uh, we were shutting these plants down, and nobody was paying any attention to the next uh, what's next for these communities. And so after my corporate consulting career, I decided to uh, go off on my own and and start working directly with communities and regions, again, focused on, you know, what do we do? How do we, we address this really big, big challenge. It was quite clear to me after my corporate work that, uh, that this wasn't a business cycle. This was a really major shift that was happening. And, um, our challenge as a country was uh accommodating this shift, and we and frankly we didn't do it very well we did uh, you know and we're seeing the the consequences of that now but we didn't we didn't manage this shift in globalization very effectively
0: thank you uh and i I saw a recent post on uh, LinkedIn when you were talking about strategic doing hmm. uh, and i don't want to i, I want to make sure that I, I have this right but um, I, I thought you would position it as basically strategic doing represents over two decades of work in research on on how to to come up with uh, approaches to addressing mm. wicked problems. Uh, right. But for for folks that might not be familiar with strategic doing, do you mind describing it? Yeah. So
1: uh, to describe it, maybe I'll give you a little background on how it came about. Um, That'd be great. Thank uh, you. So. The, the initial, as I as I left the corporate strategy consulting firm, my initial idea was, hey, you know, I've been using these planning models, these strategic planning models to make, to encourage uh, corporations to make big investment decisions about where they locate manufacturing in Mexico or the U.S., increasingly not in the U.S., but in Mexico and Taiwan and places like that. And I thought, well, you know, you could use these corporate strategy models to, um, to help Communities adjust, again, you're dealing with General Electric, you're dealing with portfolio businesses, and with Iowa City, you're dealing with a portfolio of businesses. So uh, it should make sense that you could do this, but uh, after about 10 years, I realized it was not easy to do. You could do it, but it's really, really hard to do it well. And so in the early nineties, I started focusing on how do we do strategy in a, an environment when nobody can tell anybody what to do. And I was in Singapore with a um, uh, client company of mine and a uh, chief technology officer who was a physicist had had lunch with me. And, and I was explaining my frustration with all of this. And he said, well, why don't you study open source software development? Because in open source software development, people do really complex work and nobody can tell anybody what to do. And I didn't know beans about open source software development. So he gave me a few books and I read them and I tried to learn. And so in 1993 in Oklahoma city is when I first said, okay, we're going to, we're going to try a different approach to strategy. We're going to, we're going to iterate fast. We're going to try some experiments right off the bat. And we're going to learn as we go rather than, I'm the the outside consultant. I'm going to give you all the answers, and I'll put it all in a big report. So open uh, open source software served as a model, and strategic what strategic doing is is a is a is a uh, protocol or a a set of rules about how do you develop complex collaboration by following these simple rules, and how do you form these collaborations quickly? How do you move them toward measurable outcomes? Things that we can. See and measure, and then how do you how do you ensure that we can make adjustments along the way? Because we're going to learn by doing. We're going you know we're not going to set a course and just stay sail straight ahead. We're going to learn by doing. So this is what uh, took so long. Uh, By 2003 or so, I was pretty convinced. About ten years, I was convinced that I had a model in my head that I was doing, but I didn't know how to teach it. So uh, I went to Purdue University, and I, again, I thought it would take I don't know three or four years to to do this, and it ended up taking <laughs> taking about fifteen. Uh, you know, it just t- yeah. it it was really really hard to do. Uh, but good news is we've 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 come through the other side
0: <laughs> yeah and i i i love i love the book i love the community that you uh you and your colleagues are are, are building around strategic doing mm-hmm. and uh for me coming at the world for a more of a, a design human-centered design and innovation space it it also h- helped connect a lot of dots for me mm-hmm. uh and i i I think for me too is where I find tremendous amount of value in it is also helping folks understand the difference between complex adaptive systems mm. and complicated problems or tame problems mm-hmm. and right. almost the weird uh counterintuitive psychology that we have when we misdiagnose mm. uh like that's where I see I see organizations that it, it's almost like the world became more complex around them and they had built their patterns uh, and their success around being really good at what was complicated or not, so not to diminish it, but really a a tame problem. And uh, well,
1: you, you, you've got, and that you can sell that story to, uh, you know, to, to large uh, regional economies. I mean, you look at Detroit, you look at uh, Cleveland, uh, you know, uh, these are places that generated huge amounts of wealth using an appropriate model for the times, which was, you know, again, a large scale industrial enterprise, a lot of hierarchical control. Uh, the problem is of course, that the the ground shifted underneath us and it, it shifted underneath us starting in the seventies with globalization. We started lowering trade barriers in the seventies, but then what really uh, moved that forward, of course, was the internet. Uh, it's our first interactive mass medium. And it just, it just, blew the doors off of these old business
0: models. Right. Yeah. Thank you. And one of the things I I appreciate too, that was shared in uh, is the notion that um, these complex problems or complex adaptive systems, they don't yield to previous best practices. They don't care about them. Right. But, but like you said, they can be guided by some general
1: principles. Right. Well, complex adaptive systems, there there is no really best practice. There's only promising practices, right? (laughs) So there are things that, and, uh, you know, we embed that idea when, when people come to us with a really complex challenge, like uh, NASA came to us and said, you know, how do we get our life scientists to collaborate? Well, or, or, the people in Flint, friends in Flint came to us and said, how do we reduce teenage homicides? You know, these are really, really complex. There is no best practice. There is, you know, and all we have are promising practices. Now, complex adaptive systems can um, uh, originate. They do in fact originate through the, through the um, interaction of, of people, of agents of, uh, and, and these, these interactions can be guided. We can guide them. and, we can uh, identify simple rules that lead to the complex system. And so that's, that's really why it took so long to come up with strategic doing. We had to figure out what, what were the simple rules, first of all, and then how do we teach them? What, what are the skills and, and how do we, how do we teach those skills? And, uh, it turns out that it's, it's not a trivial problem to figure this out. So it, uh, you know, it, it's been a great journey. Um, but now we can now we can start to teach them, and we can we can see that it's a cross cultural model. So we can teach it in different languages, and it's it's exciting. It's at this stage of the game.
0: Thanks, and I know from from the subtitle of the book too. I mean, labeling uh, you know agile leadership. That's right. another thing that I really appreciate because time scales in the world around us shifting. It was right. it was okay decades ago that the strategic plan could come down from on high it could it could take probably wasn't uh not a lot of uh, uh good feeling of agency for the frontline workers in it right. but now right is the the things that could change in the time that a, a traditional strategic planning process would happen so you, you know the notion of agile leadership too is just something that i think is really powerful what was your insight there well it it it's true that leadership changes in these
1: complex systems. So it's that they are not amenable or not, not you can't direct them in that sense. You can't plan them. And so the idea of heroic leadership where you just have a singular vision and you can kind of, you know, move people in that, it really, really doesn't line up with the experience that you have when you start to develop and generate solutions to these wicked problems. What what really happens is you have a much more distributed leadership. You have a much more small-D democratic leadership in the sense that leadership shifts from person to person based on the nature of the conversation. And this is what's so important is that collaborations emerge from conversations and these conversations, and this is probably the key in, key insight of of our work, these conversations have a very predictable structure to them and they they have a set of rules that you can follow to generate the complex collaboration that you're looking for. and um, as you do that, what you find is that nobody is good at all of these rules. I mean, you know, I can do all of the rules that I can put together a collaboration, but I'm not equally good at all of the skills. And um, so this is one of the reasons why a team is so critically important with complex work, because the nature of leading uh, a team to generate solutions for a wicked problem is it, that itself is a very complex dynamic, and what you see when you really study core teams that that work on on these issues is you see responsibility shifting from person to person, and uh, we did probably two two and a half years of study of the of the. Uh, core team in Flint that was working on this issue of teenage homicides or youth violence. And what we learned was, was leadership moves around the group. And so it's this whole notion of a heroic single leader, I think is out of date and what we need to be thinking about our core teams. What we talk about is core teams and, and shared leadership and, and understanding that you, you are, you have gifts, you're very good at certain things, but you're not going to be good at everything. (laughs) So so don't pretend that you are. And so that's a, that's a, that's a big step. I mean, it was a big step for me to, to, to stand in front of a group and say, Hey, you know, I, I really don't know. I don't know how to do this. And, um, that was a, that was a milestone for me. I remember exactly when it happened. And, uh, and it was a, it was a big step emotionally for
0: me. I I as and and you've articulated this uh, in in the book and some of your work, but I, I I really do appreciate that idea, like also that what leadership looks like mm-hmm. addressing these complex adaptive systems. And I do I I I feel as well is it's almost a greater level of maturity is that vulnerability is to yeah. say I don't know right yeah Co- combined with a bias for action, but let's find out let's let's work on this, but work on it together rather than you know I think the command and control is you always have to look like you're in control, so you always have to know and
1: yeah, you have a mask on right of course <laughs> as, you know as a command and
0: control leader
1: um and, and really what I've found, at least in my experiences, it's when I, when I, you know, I was a consultant, you know, I'd gone to graduate school, I'd done all these things. And here I was in these rural counties in Kentucky at the time. And, um, I had to get up in front of a group of people that I'd never met before and admit that I just didn't know. I didn't know how to deal with this. And, um, that was a, as I said, that was a big emotional step, but a very critical, part of my development uh, was was recognizing that I couldn't be good at everything. I didn't know, you know, I didn't know everything and, and, um, and it was a, essentially a, a bit of an artificial position to put me up on the stage when I really should be sitting at the table and uh, sharing what I know and seeing if we could together come up with, with some solutions that would make some sense for that community. And it's when you shift, when you, when you step off the stage and sit down on the, at the table, um, that that shift is a big, it's a big mind shift and it does take a certain level of, of maturity, I suppose to, to, to make that shift. Um, we still don't see that a lot in <laughs> some of the things that I've seen, uh, you know, we, we, you know, I've come out of universities for the last 15 years and it's pretty rare for the, a university leader to be, to have that self of self-assurance. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of them are, they're still, you know, kind of posing. And we see that of course in our politics, Yeah, no. So,
0: and uh, I, I really do uh, love the, the 10 rules of strategic doing. Uh, mm-hmm. But num- number one, the first place you have to start is creating and man- maintaining that safe space mm-hmm. for deep focused conversations. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Why, what, what a safe space really means, and why that's so critical?
1: Well, a safe space really means a place where we are able to listen to one another and and understand that everyone coming to the table has a certain perspective that we need to respect and a set of gifts that they may be willing to share to help us craft a new solution to something. And so for that experience to happen, we have to have a deeper uh, focused conversation, and for that to happen, we have to we have to behave in ways that build trust and mutual respect. Now, this is not a new idea. The, you know, I, I when I talk about this in classes, I, I say, look, in it, May 1787, uh, according to Madison's notes, uh, you know, the the first thing that the the Constitutional Convention did was pass rules of civility. And when you think about it, if you don't have rules of civility, you can't have a deeper conversation. And we've seen this, you know, we, we see this on our television sets all the time. Um, but our democracy demands this, uh, of us that we create these spaces. And, and the good news is that, that I, you know, these are, these are self, appointed you know, we can, we can all gather around and just agree that this is the way in which we're going to operate. And so, um, We have these these spaces in our communities. Um, Primary example is a library, public library, you know, and you go into, say, a rural parish in Louisiana and you say, where could we meet? And oftentimes people don't want to meet at high schools, but they will meet in libraries and you ask yourself, well, why is that? I mean, why why would they meet in a public library, but not a public high school? And the answer is how are questions handled in both of those experiences? you know, in a, in a high school questions often are handled like, that's a stupid question and, you know, ridicule and all of that. But in a library you ask a stupid question and the librarian says, well, let's look that up. (laughs) You know, so, so people's experiences are different in these places. And so a lot of people did ha- had a very bad experience in school, and so they a lot of people won't go to a high school. They don't feel comfortable in high school, but they will feel comfortable in a public library. And you have to find spaces, and they vary from place to place. Like in again, in, in rural parts of Ascension Parish, which is near Baton Rouge, people wanted to go or were willing to go to volunteer fire departments. Well, when you think about it, that's, that's a reasonable place to go. Um, They didn't want necessarily to go to any government buildings. They would go to churches. They would go to uh, um, the, um, they would go to the extension offices, you know, the LSU extension offices. So you have to find these spaces and then you have to protect them. You have to create the space around them. And um, in particular, difficult situations. Uh, And again, I'm reflecting back on my experiences in Louisiana, West Feliciana Parish, particularly difficult challenges. Longstanding, you have the descendants of the landed gentry, and you have the descendants of the slaves, and there's all sorts of really difficult challenges in that that kind of environment. And I got the uh, head of the ministerial alliance, and I just put them in the front of the room. And I said, all I want you to do is just sit here. And um, the reason was that, that that gentleman there was able to tamp down feelings of of, of highly emotional feelings where things could gotten got spin out of control. So unless you have safe, create that safe space. And this is the whole notion of psychological safety. But unless you create that safe space, you can't have the deeper conversations. And if you can't have deeper conversations, you can't do complex thinking together and you're not going to come up with solutions to these complex problems. It's really as simple
0: as that. And I really appreciate that. And, uh, I just want to s- jump into like the second rule because I feel like these two together are really the foundation for a lot of yeah, the work. They are. Mm-hmm. All right. uh, but Uh And then also because as well as uh, the designer in me always loves this one is, mm-hmm. is the framing the conversation around an appreci- appreciative question, mm-hmm. but just the, the, the power and importance of framing, I, I just find fascinating mm-hmm. and kind of almost from a meaning making perspective, but right. uh If I'm understanding this correctly, too, I feel like it's it's almost helping align what people might be for so that they can be rather than um, it's not a debate on which is right or right. It, it's right. Of an appreciative, right. like let's, what we might be and, and what we might be for. Right. And then it opens possibilities. It
1: does. And, and and what you're asking people to do is think about how do we design a future that we can't really see yet? You know, and we, we, we kind of have an idea maybe about what that might be. We have an aspiration perhaps. I mean, in in Flint, uh, you know a framing question original framing question was what would it look like if kids were able to walk home from school not fearful of, of violence you know what would that look like what where, what would our churches be doing what would our schools be doing what would all the you know the um, the parents be doing and so you you what you're trying to to encourage people to imagine is a is a future that we we have we have the ability to design this we have the ability to move toward that future but in order to do that, we have to have a conversation around the assets that we have and how we could create new opportunities by linking these together. And so the framing question sets the guardrails for that conversation. It just says, hey, this is, this is something we all care about. Um, the people who come to these conversations care about that. And um, we want to create an aspirational question, but not I, I used to say there's a really thin line between a vision and a hallucination. You know, we we want to create an aspirational question or a question that focuses on opportunity, but one that's not hallucinatory, you know, and one that's not, oh, so, well, I don't, I don't get that. I don't, I'm not going there. What you're trying to do is is trigger in people a very important dimension. Vision statements are are virtually irrelevant, but the process of visualization, the process of, of trying to articulate what it is that you care about. What's the future that you want to leave? What's the legacy that you want to leave? That's something we care about. And as we start to articulate that, and as we listen to each, the other dimension of this, as we listen to each other, we communicate respect and we start to see the world in a different way. And so the whole process of empathizing. Starts to emerge out of this process because we start to see the world from a different perspective, and when we can do that, the 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 richness of our experience together just opens up. I mean, it just it just opens up, and um, and that's really why strategic doing works. I tell people it it works because people have powerful experiences when they have these deeper conversations, and um, they walk away connected. They walk away seeing the world a little bit differently um, and they have fun at it and it doesn't cost any, you know, it doesn't cost a lot of money. So, so, okay, well, this, this is going to work. This'll work. So yeah, it's, it's fun. It's fun to watch. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Uh, a friend and uh, colleague of mine, uh, Nick Scappaticci he's uh, he lives in Rhode Island. His company is a design firm called Tellart, uh, and they do a lot of future-facing things. Like they helped in Dubai build the Museum of the Future, and I know one thing that Nick says is that, um, like, for us to address the really complex problems of our time, we have to be able to, we have to collaborate at scale, right? And and we've talked about uh, he and I like early in our careers, the collaboration in an organization might have been just one department working with another. Right, but but this this scale now, like it's it's religious institutions, it's it's mm. government, it's business, it's the, it's education, mm. like the the policymakers, the subject matter experts, and mm. um, I, so I that's I one of the things I really appreciate about strategic doing is laying this out there because I feel like uh, the real world is demanding us to work in teams, mm. yet we don't really teach team dynamics. In, in school or even in business, it's just expected that you'll you can work as a team or a manager might have some successories poster about teamwork, hmm. but not a lot of time is dedicated to actually cultivating those those practices. So that's why I I I also appreciate your simple rules. Like it's it's enough to again, let's let's keep this going in the right direction. But where well, where did you come to that kind of the the notion on the teams as well? I just want to dig into that a little bit more.
1: Yeah it it no, nobody can address these challenges alone, and so you do have to work in a team. You do have to work in a in a collaboration. So teams actually become the the operational unit, the most most uh, uh, functional operational unit that you can to address and generate solutions to these complex problems. Um, and you're right. I mean, most of the work and teamwork by academics is well pretty academic, and so it it's pretty hard to translate into practices or skills that, that are taught. And I think the difference for us was that we started to understand, I started to understand in the mid nineties, that it's all about the conversations. that we have, and so the question was then, okay, how, how, what are these conversations and how do we design and direct them? How do we guide them? Um, and, uh, it was a surprise, uh, somewhat, that that we identified the ten skills. That these ten skills are are uh, are associated with each one of these rules. That the, you know, so they have an affiliate, you know, kind of an affiliate skill that touches on each one of the rules. And we learned from our colleagues in in the Netherlands why it is that that nobody is particularly good at all ten skills. And so. Um, it's not a surprise to me that we don't teach collaboration because we really haven't, uh, we really haven't understood it in a deep way. Um, And as I said, I think, I think what we've been able to do is develop a theory here of, you know, how do these things work, but then move that theory into action through, through concrete skills. And I think that, as I said, I, I, I didn't think it would take as long as it did to develop it, but um, now we can teach it. And now we can, to your original point, now we can go to scale because we can teach these skills both in group settings, but equally important since the pandemic, we've been teaching them online. And so we now have people coming to us, for example, in a few weeks, there'll, there'll be a group of from community colleges in in Iowa who are gonna come together to to learn these skills. Well, you can now think about deploying these skills across a state using community colleges. Or in North Carolina, we have a group that focuses on educational attainment. They're thinking about how do we deploy these skills across a state? And um, in Puerto Rico, we're deploying these across the island. And um, we'll just talk to, to uh, the incoming minister in Ecuador who wants to deploy this across his country. And so, you can think in realistic terms now about large-scale deployments because you have a replicable, scalable, and sustainable process for teaching these skills. Um, and, and so, now we, we have the challenge, I think, of, of embracing really complex challenges. So, we're working with a group right now on cl- climate change. You know, what could every community or every region do collectively for a climate change uh, mitigation strategy? How, you know, what what could we do? And so, you can now Really start thinking about okay well we're, we'll start out with three communities as pilots and then we'll move to ten and then we'll move to twenty and then we'll move to a hundred and you can realistically get there within a three to four year period uh, Alberta, for example, the whole uh, in Alberta we've been working with fifty civic entrepreneurs who want to want to uh, transform accelerate the transformation of the Alberta economy. Well, now you can talk about it in terms of a large scale. So, um yeah, you know, I think we're meeting the moment. The question is, of course, you know, um, we're, we're in a race. I, I think we're in a race on a whole lot of different levels, but uh, civically we're in a race, uh, politically we're in a race and in climate change, we're in a race. So we've got to, we, you know, we got to move. We got to get moving on a lot of these things.
0: Yeah, thank you. I uh, I know one of and and you've 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 referenced this a couple of times, just not realizing how long it might take for for the strategic doing process to kind of come to get like your um your definition of it, right? But mm. I I just wanted to note that uh, as we know, also with complex adaptive systems and complex problems, that they they don't have a predictable time frame, right? And I think right that's, that's one true. of the things that also gets. Uh, both workers and management frustrated is because mm-hmm. they're used to saying I, I want this by this deadline. Well, and that's that's fine for tame or even complicated problems. Mm-hmm. But, right. But sometimes we, we we don't know and part exactly. of the problem, or we misdiagnose the problem and we ha- we have to start over.
1: Yeah, and and I think you it's impossible to predict. Uh, you know, is the future in terms of of being able to set out a time frame and say, okay, well, by this date, we'll you can set um, targets for yourself, that's, that's perfectly all right. But to, to forecast it and say that it's going to happen is, is, a you know, that's kind of a fool's errand. What, what I focus on is, is aspirational goals. You know, I would like to see this roll out across the state. So I was actually positioned really, really well to do this because of Iowa city's embrace of strategic doing. We've trained a lot of people there. And when you start to think about, um, scaling this you can you can start to see exponential growth potential because it's it's all network based it's you know it's it's people training other people um so you you know the, the the main advantage of the way in which we designed this is we said you know when I went to Purdue I said look this this is either gonna work and it's gonna be pretty exciting to watch or it's gonna completely fail and nobody's gonna care. <laughs> but um but the one thing that's going to hold it back is if we if we start trying to claim intellectual property on this. And so the, the, the agreement I had with the Purdue administration was, was you know, if this is successful, we're going to open source the IP. We're not going to try to, you know, license this or, you know, create. We're basically just going to try to create an environment in which people learn the skills and we'll will teach the skills. But once you've learned the skills and taught been taught them and, and practice them, then you just use them and, and, you know, get other people to use them. And, you know, and so you're going to start to see hopefully this, this growth, that's what, that's what we planned it for, but you know we'll see
0: whether, <laughs> whether it happens. Uh, right. Uh, one, one of the um, uh, interesting things I found too, with uh, the strategic doing book, was um, I mean maybe the most surprising endorsement for me came from Yo-Yo Ma. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. That that was an interesting story all in of itself. I mean do you, know. do you mind sharing how that came together? I just sure, thought that was fascinating. Sure.
1: Yeah. So so uh, before I do that they recognize that that rule ten of strategic doing is all about nudging, right? Right. And I tell I tell the team my that I work with, my team, that I'm, that I'm a terrible nudger, but I'm a great nudgie. In other words, you know, I I don't mind when people, you know, send me emails. So, so here, here's the story. I I was at, at Purdue and I got an email um, from Yo-Yo Ma's office and I thought, well, I'm, you know, I was at one point a, a supporter of the Cleveland Symphony. So I thought, oh, you know, it's, it's just, you know, Yo-Yo Ma's going to beat the Cleveland Symphony or something. And they're, you know I thought it was well it's a fundraising deal so i so i actually threw it away i i didn't i didn't even look at it and um and then later i got an, a a uh, uh, call on my phone from the 617 area code. Now, I used to live in Boston, and that's the 617 area code. And I thought, well, geez, there's some old friend from Boston. And I pick up the phone or pick up the message, and, and it's Yo-Yo Ma's office. And I thought, oh, this is weird. I just saw You're an persistent. email. are <laughs> persistent. I just saw an email from them. And um, so, I, I contacted my colleague, Liz, and I said, you know, Yo-Yo Ma's office is called. And and they want to talk and i said you know I don't, I don't know what and she said, well, call them back and i said okay okay so i call them back and they had heard about strategic doing they wanted yo-yo Ma was doing a a series of concerts and in conjunction with those concerts he wanted to go to communities and talk to the talk to people and um, his great vision which is really an important one is is seeing how creative organizations can play a role in bringing people together. And um, they wanted to do this in Youngstown and uh, they had about, uh, I don't know, 10 days and uh, they didn't want to pay any money for us to come to Youngstown. And I said, well, you know, I I don't really want to go to Youngstown uh, to do this because he's just going to, you know, he's, he's going to show up, I don't know, make a statement and then leave. And then we're going to, you know, he's not going to be there. And my cynicism was calling and they said, well, no, you have to go to Youngstown. You have to go to Youngstown. So I said, okay. okay, all right, I'll go to Youngstown. So I went to Youngstown and of course, um, Yo-Yo actually attended the workshop. I mean, he was there for the whole thing. And, uh, so afterward, after the workshop, he, uh, I hadn't met him yet. Uh, You know, oddly, I hadn't met him. And so I went to went up to him to say thank you. And he just grabbed me and gave me a big hug and said, I love what you're doing. This is great. And I said, well, thank you. And uh, and he gave me his card and he said, we need to keep in touch. And here's here's my cell phone. So I said, "Okay, great. Well, my colleague then said, well, we're writing this book. How about Yo-Yo Ma giving us. (laughs) I said, you Yo your not going to do that. He's not going to do that. He's too busy. He's not going to do well. You need to know, not, you know, just why don't you write a, write the thing and then send it to him and see if <laughs> it's like, no, he's not going to do this. And of course I, I was nudged into sending him a text and saying, yo, yo, you want to write a, a blurb and he came back and he said, I'm, I'm too busy. You know, it's, a, and I said, you know, look, I told you, he was going to be too busy. Well, about three weeks later, Uh, and it was, it was new year's Eve, three weeks later, I get a text from him and he said, um, I've sent you an email. I, um, I wrote a blurb. Why don't you look at it and we can talk about it. And, uh, so I looked at the email and of course the email is the exact foreword of the book, right? Yeah. It starts out, (laughs) it starts out. I've been waiting for this book my entire life. And, uh, I just fell off the floor. I just I couldn't believe it. So I texted him back. I said, "Yo yo, could I use this as the forward to the book?" <laughs> and he said, "Sure, whatever you want." And uh, so that's how it happened. I, you know, again, if you don't have a nudge,r I, it would have never happened. I, you know, I, I, Liz Nilsson, who, who who was the persistent nudge,r is really responsible for the yo yo ma. Uh, introduction to the book <laughs> <It> goes back <laughs> to my earlier point. You know, I you know you 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 got to have a team.
0: <laughs> you yep. can't do
1: this by yourself.
0: That's you know. that's great. Uh, from your perspective, like how how might one be a better nudgy? Do you have any advice oh, on being a better nudgy? Well,
1: yeah, I you know I don't I don't give out my cell phone to everybody, but I do give out my cell phone to you know pe- people who I think will respect. You know, nudging me, and so I, I, if you just understand that that we have we have dozens of projects that we're doing, right? I, you know, and and I just can't keep them all straight. Now, one of the good things about my brain is that that I can get really focused, and one of the bad things about my brain is I can get really focused. <laughs> and so, and so when I'm really focused, I mean, you know, things can happen all around me, and I don't see them. I don't. I don't even perceive them. I don't. You know, they go right by me and I realized that, um, uh, you know, I need, I need people who n- know me to, to help me and nudge me and say, you know, Hey, look, you got to pay attention to this for 10 minutes and do this. And, and so if you, if you understand your weaknesses, this is a weak, I mean, you know, again, it's a strength and a weakness, right? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's something that if I, if I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a public person, so I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not out, you know, I, I I like to be focused on what I'm doing. But as I said, you know, when you're doing a lot of different things, as we do, you've got to have people who nudge you and, and you just realize that
0: that's not something you're really good at.
1: So nudging helps for me. I appreciate
0: <laughs> that. Yeah. Thanks, Ed. Um, uh, one of, one of the things I like to dive into with guests is the notion of, um, ever feeling stuck in how and and your personal techniques for getting yourself unstuck, but whether it was the overall process of strategic doing or, or the Mm -hmm. writing of the book, uh, did you ever feel stuck? Oh yeah. I mean, there's, there's, you know, you don't go on a
1: journey like this over a number of years without feeling discouraged and stuck and discouraged. Um, you know, I've been, um, literally fired from jobs doing this. Um, uh, you know, people, I was in an academic environment, uh, you know, Case Western Reserve University on the economics faculty, and they just didn't, you know, they didn't like it. So the dean that hired me left and the new dean came in and and they said, OK, you're you're done. <laughs> and, and so, you know, and that's that's a really uh, feeling of being stuck. And what what I've learned that works is that, you you know, your networks are with you regardless, you know, you and and. and so, building out your networks, and I'm I'm not talking about networking. I'm I'm talking about building people, building relationships with people who really care about what you're trying to do, who really want to guide you, who really want to help you. Um, and it's a handful of people. It's not 15 people. It's it's three, four, five, and maybe it's your family. But it's it, it in my case, it extended beyond that. And so when I got fired from From case, which was a real jolt. I was really surprised that that happened. Uh, I call up my colleagues at Purdue to tell them that I couldn't do a a project with them, and they said, "Well, good. Come work with us." And so, you know, I was stuck for maybe an hour. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I immediately, you know, another door opened, right? And so, um, we we all we all rely on our on our networks, but but paying attention to those relationships. And again, I, I'm not talking about 15 or a hundred relationships. I'm talking about those handful of people that will work with you to help you. Um, it just can't do really. I, I couldn't have done what I did without this. I mean, you know, and so, um, feeling stuck. Yeah. You'll feel stuck. Um, feeling stuck and alone is really bad. It's hard. Um, and the, the best antidote is, is to reach out, to reach out to other
0: people. Yeah. Well, and, and thank you. And I really do appreciate you separating, uh, networking from your network, mm-hmm. right. And, and, right. 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 just like, cause I, I, I love the, the feeling of, a, a strong connected network. And, uh, most of my friends think I'm, uh, extroverted. I, I still don't think I am. And <laughs> one of the things that makes me just want to run and hide our networking events.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's right. I mean, you know, again, it can be very superficial and it can be, and that, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm yeah. talking about the people with whom you can have a, a deep conversation right. where you can share, you know, your vulnerability, your, your sense of doubt. Um, yeah. That's, that's really, and, and mentors. I've had mentors throughout my entire career and um, now I'm, very focused on mentoring other people but but um yeah, I mean I've had multiple mentors uh, who've who've helped me through those difficult times
0: yeah I appreciate that, and that's a, a great segue into kind of the last topic uh, mm-hmm. that I try to cover with guests is the notion of advice, and sometimes it does come from you know wisdom from mentors mm-hmm. uh, or uh, sometimes the notion of advice is. Uh, Austin Kleon's book, Steal Like an Artist, he says that we're just, uh, uh, when we give advice, we're just talking to our younger self. So mm, I don't know mm. if you want to share either like advice you wish you would have had or good advice you've received.
1: Oh, yeah. So so one of the my mentors in Cleveland was a guy named Dick Pogue. Now, Dick Pogue, um, not very many people know the name, but he, he, he really built the Jones State Law Firm from a Cleveland-based firm into a global law firm. And he's a very, very creative guy. And he, and another gentleman, um, David Morgan who was an iconic venture capitalist. Uh, David has now passed away, unfortunately, but David, David was an early investor in Intel and in Apple. And, and, and uh, both Dick and David would invite me to lunch. And these were times when, you know, again, I would come in and I, uh, this was a hard, part period of time. And, um, so I asked them once the same, same question, you know, I asked them, well, what advice would you give me? (laughs) You know, what advice did your mentors give you? And, um, uh, uh, Dick said, you know, uh, his advice came from Erwin Griswold. Now, now if, if you, if you're not a lawyer, but, but Erwin Griswold is an iconic name in, in, in law. I mean, his casebook, he was a solicitor general of the United States. He was the dean of the Harvard Law School, and this was who the Dick's mentor was. And uh, uh, Dick came in one day to his mentor with a very frustrating problem—problem a problem where he had been defeated—and um, he was looking for guidance. And and uh, and Irwin said to him, "Press on, regardless." <laughs> and so, so Dick basically said to me, you know, keep pressing on, press on regardless. I mean, you know, if you, if you really believe what you're doing and you've got a passion about what you're doing, just go, just go, just do it. And, um, I try to encourage people because that's really how you discover your passions. You know, you don't discover your passions sitting around, you discover your passions by doing things. And, uh, yeah, you will, if you're, if you're, if you're trying to, um, change the world in any way, you will meet resistance. That's just the nature of the business. I mean, you will, you encounter resistance. People like the way things are right now, you know, and you may not like them, but they like them. And that was one of the great discoveries that I made that working down in Louisiana is people make a lot of money off of poverty. (laughs) So so there are people who don't want things to change. And Mm -hmm. if you are a change maker, if you, if you say, look, the world can be better, um, you will you will face resistance because uh, there will be an immune response. You'll, you'll, you'll trip off an immune response. And so, uh, but be prepared for that and just press on, press on. And that's really, you know, again, I could have dropped, I ran into a lot of walls, a lot of obstacles with strategic doing over the years. And I could have dropped it at any time. But uh, Dick's advice to me, press on, was, was really smart
0: regardless, regardless of what's happening, press on. Ed, I I, I love it. And I really appreciate that you took that advice to heart because Mm -hmm. I'm a big believer in strategic doing. And so I'm, I'm so glad that uh, you and the team were able to give birth to this kind of important uh, process. Well,
1: you're part of the next generation of leaders. I'm, I'm 70 years old. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, my job is to, is to hopefully inspire the next generation of leaders to take on these complex problems. And I tell people, look, uh, you may think you're the next generation, but your time is now. It's right now. Don't, don't, don't wait. Don't ask for permission. Don't wait. Keep moving because the people who are in positions of power, they don't really know what they're doing. That's, it's just, it's, it's that, you know, it's, it's just True. It's they don't really know what they're doing. They're in the same situation as we all are, and you have so many. This next generation has so many gifts. We need those gifts right now. Uh, We don't. We don't. Can't wait for it. So, my guidance to people
0: is is is, you know, press on, (laughs) press on, press on. Yep. Yeah, Ed, thanks again for making the time and joining me today. It was an absolute pleasure to, to have you here on the podcast. Oh, well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity,
1: Matt. Thank you.